Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. This is the podcast where we stir the pot and lick the spoon. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we're going to be finishing up our wizard for a homebrew showcase. In the last couple episodes we went over the Yonti race and the School of Enchanting wizard. So those are going to be the race and class and subclass for our third character for our homebrew showcase. And today we are going to be going over the homebrewed magic items that we put together for this character. I was kind of disappointed by the number of magic items geared towards casters. There's a lot of them where you have an item that has so many charges and you can cast a spell with it. But items that affect your spells without giving you additional casts of spells, there weren't very many of them. I can see that. A lot of that has to do with really trying to keep the characters in balance to a point. Anything that has a spell save or the spell power itself really is a point of... I mean, if you mess with that too much, you can really make something that hits a lot heavier than you would expect at first. Even adding like a plus one or two to a spell resist really can tip the balance per level. And if you have a group of casters, that really will mess with your challenge rating effects a lot. Yeah, but there are lots of wands and staves that have... Yeah, you can cast this spell so many times a day. And I get it. It's because your spell slots are a finite resource and you want to try and stretch that out as much as you can. It is a finite resource that other classes like the rogue and the fighter don't have because they just got their weapon and they just walk up and hit things. Really, when your wizard runs out of spell slots, you've got an eldritch knight with no armor and a cantrip. You're really super squishy, and you're not doing a whole lot for your party at that point. Right, but by the time you get to that point, it happens a whole lot in the lower levels than it does at the upper levels. You know, once you get to that point where you're completely out of spell slots, you've had a busy day. You've had a busy day, or you've had a resistant monster, or things have gone sideways. As I've always said, that's where the game gets fun, and that's where you have to get imaginative. But, you know, sometimes the dragon just shrugs everything off. Sometimes the DM's dice are hot, and... They're saving on everything, so you're having to cast that spell three or four times to get it to actually stick. And especially with the mechanic of legendary resistances, you can hit them with something that would stick, and they can decide, no, I'm going to just shrug it off. So you have to play with your spell economy a bit. You don't want to lead off with your really big stuff because you want to hit them with something that's just debilitating enough to make them burn through their legendary resistances before you hit them with something that's really going to pack a punch. And that's something we discussed last week, too. We're talking about the wizards. Now, everybody sees the wizards as big damage dealers, and they can be. There's no reason why you can't be if that's the character you want to play. But where the wizards tend to really shine is if you can... You're not dropping the enemy with a spell, but you're more dazing them with the spell. And if you can get them to turn or target or weaken them just enough that your melee characters can go in and really bash on them, that's where a wizard really shines. You can always cast Fireball and just burn everything to a crisp, and there's a time and place for that. But a lot of the other spells the wizards have, you're not a solo player. This is a team sport. But if you want to be a solo player, you just need Force Cage and Cloud Kill. Granted, as long as there's no resist (laughs) to it, yeah. Well, I think you get a con save for half damage for Cloud Kill, but Force Cage, you just drop a cage. If you're in it, you're stuck in there. I don't think you can teleport out of a Force Cage. I think the only way out of a Force Cage is to hit it with a Disintegrate. 
That's not a spell I've ever really actually got to use too much. So that's not one it's, of my. I think it's a. I think it's a six level spell. It's a. It's a pretty high level spell. So that it's, is not one of my go tos. The combination of force cage and cloud kill is pretty devastating because you lock them into an area with force cage and then you drop a cloud kill on them and they take huge amounts of damage every single round because they can't get out of it. Now, was it you or Conrad that was telling the story about the party that came up against the big boss and he was expecting a big fight and they had a psionic and a cleric in the group and so the psionic basically created a psionic bubble around the enemy's head and the cleric created create water. And they drowned the guy and walked, yes, walked off. Yes, that's one of my wife's stories. That's one of Kate's stories. That was a game that she was in in college. She was playing a cleric, and one of the other people in her party was a psionicist. And yeah, that's what they did, was the BBEG decided he was going to give his monologue. And so the psionicist made a psionic sphere around his head, and my wife use create water and filled the sphere with water and they just held it there until he drowned beautifully played by the characters i'd be saying so many terrible words as a dm you don't understand i spent three hours writing this scenario up and well do you guys like popcorn because i like popcorn let's get some popcorn (laughs) (laughs) but we're getting off topic again we're gonna go over our magic items that we made for our wizard starting with our level three items do you want to start do you want me to start I'll go ahead and let you start. Okay. So my level three item is fairly simple. I'm calling it the Staff of Focus, and it just grants a plus one bonus on spell attack rolls and spell save DCs for your spells. Okay. That is a good, simple thing to have at third level. It's nothing too big. Again, when you start adding more than one to those DCs, you can kind of really tip the balance either way, but plus one on either one at third level. I don't think that'll skew the game too far in any direction, so I like that. It's Um, good, it's simple, not a whole lot of bells and whistles. It's a good stout stick. It's a variant on the Wand of the War Mage, which is the wizard-specific one. There are different items for the different caster classes, but the one specifically for the wizard is the Wand of the War Mage, which gives you a plus one bonus on spell attack rolls, and it allows you to ignore half cover. And there are different grades of it, So it's like your standard plus one, plus two, plus three weapon. There are plus one, plus two, plus three wands of the War Mage. There's one for the Sorcerer. There's one for the Warlock. I can't remember. I think there's one for the Druid and one for the Cleric too, but I'm not certain. I believe there is too. So last week we were talking about some of the neat cards that Wizards have put out that have the spell listing and stuff like that. For DM, something my wife had gotten me as a gift. It's basically all of the magical items that Wizards have in cards. And so I've gone through those and kind of glanced and tried to steal ideas or clean ideas but yeah those mages and the staffs do come up so that's that is a good standard object particularly good for third level i like it so what's yours so mine is going to be a ring and i was thinking the ring was going to grant you access to any cantrip of choice but going through looking at the cantrip i came across mind sliver which is still unearthed arcana but i really really like it and going with the whole yanti theme for our enchanter, I'm going to say that this is going to be a blackstone ring carved with the Seal of Solomon into it, and it gives you access to the Mind Sliver cantrip. From the text, you drive a disorienting spike of psychic energy into the mind of one creature you can see within range. The target must make an intelligence saving throw. Unless the saving throw is successful, the target takes 1d6 psychic damage, and the first time it makes a saving throw before the end of your next turn, it must roll a d4 and subtract that number from the save. Okay, so it's basically it basically applies Bane to their next saving throw. 
Yes, as well as the damage. And so the spell itself, the cantrip is Mind Sliver. So basically it just gives you an extra cantrip. I was going to say pick one from the Wizard School, which is still an option, but I really, like I said, I think that spell fits really well with Aryanti, so I'm just going to make that ring to that cantrip. I really like if you're going to give a magic item that does a spell to specify the spell, because there are two classifications of magic items when it comes to spells. You have items that can cast spells and items that can store spells. So you can have ion stones or a circlet of spell storing or a ring of spell storing where you cast a spell into the item and it holds that cast of the spell. So that way you prepare it at the end of the day when you still have a couple of spell slots left over. And so that way the next day you wake up, you have all your spell slots back and you have this one extra spell just circling around that if you're in a pinch, you can cast that spell for free because you've already spent the spell slot to cast it. So I like to keep to that sort of, to those sorts of rules that either it has a specific spell or a specific group of spells that it can cast, or it stores a spell that you know to cast again later. And that is a good fundamental way to go about building an item. That's something we really haven't talked a lot about yet in our other episodes and maybe we can discuss that more a little bit in this one or as we go on further is how do we go about actually making an item so i mean that is a great way here are the building blocks you use on building an item that's actually some really really sound advice to work with i always like to go to the published items first and just read into them and see okay this item is of this quality and these are the things it does And just try and find a magic item that is close to what I'm wanting. And then build off of that. I'm doing more reskinning than actually creating something from scratch. And so both of these items, like I said, they both have a little, just a little extra kick to them. They do one thing. Mine's a cantrip. Ian gives you a plus one to hit and plus one to your spell save. So these would both fall fairly comfortably, I believe, under uncommon items. So they're not... Again, anything crazy, you might have one or two of these if you were looking into a shop or something like that, but they're not going to be... Not everyone's walking down the street with one of these, definitely. An item that gives you access to a cantrip would definitely be an uncommon magic item. All right, so James, do you want to go ahead and uh, go into your level 11 item? Yeah, so my level 11 item is probably one of my favorite items that I have created, and this is one of the first things I did create for a campaign. And this is the book of either Bloody Shadows or the Sanguine Umbria, if you want to use your Latin words. It's a leather-bound tome. They have to attune to it. Once they attune to the book, it gives them an extra 4th level and an extra 5th level spell slot per day. But each time they undergo a long rest, they need to make a will save with a DC 12. If they fail their will save, they'll wake up with a nightmare and they randomly cast one of their spells you determine level with a 1d6 roll at a random target. So whatever spells they've prepared previously, they'll burn one of the spell slots and it could be at the wall, it could be at the party member, it could be at themselves. So your wizard could wake up with a nightmare and cast bare strength on somebody just as easily as they could wake up with a nightmare and cast fireball into the middle of the camp. So this is kind of a fun thing. They don't realize the book's cursed unless they roll identify. If they cast Dispel Curse and they're still attuned, the curse stays, so they only break the curse if they remove the attunement from the tome. Well, generally speaking, if you're attuned to a cursed item and you remove the curse, you automatically become unattuned to the item unless you choose to reattune to the item which if you're going to go through all of the effort to remove the curse i don't know why you would reattune to the item 
Because those two extra spell slots can be very handy some days. Yes, but nuking yourself with a fireball is not so much. <laughs> like I said, this is one of the first things I ever homebrewed. I do like this one a lot. The two extra spell slots definitely come in handy. The randomness of whether or not they'll suffer a nightmare from the book, if they do, how it affects the party or what actually happens, does create a fair bit of chaos. And as a DM, if I can throw a little chaos or some extra dice rolls into the party that are just, let's see what fate says, I tend to enjoy doing that. And this will work really well with this particular wizard because as an enchantment wizard, going to know lots of enchantment spells. And so, you know, you're going to have things like charm person. Exactly. So suddenly for the next few hours, this one party member is really receptive to you for some reason. (laughs) So, yeah, at that point, particularly with enchantment or illusion spells, that gives a lot of opportunity for roleplay. Do you want to roleplay that you've charmed this person and so you have the after effects of whatever your nightmare was still going in this thing, so you think this person's friend or foe, or maybe you convince that maybe everyone else is doppelgangers and they have to protect you because that was the nightmare you had. So at that point, that could be really something that the party members and or the DM could get involved in and kind of build that up versus, you know, just a straight evocation type spell. I'm almost tempted to suggest rather than casting a random spell from your known spells, have it be a wild magic surge and roll a D100 on the wild magic surge table. If you do have the Nightmare, I definitely want to burn one of the two spell slots you do get, though. And that's kind of the coin flip to the book, is you're always going to wind up with at least one extra spell level, but you could be two on, on a good night. The issue with that is you get all of your spell slots back at the end of a long rest. So if they wake up in the middle of the night and cast a spell coming out of a Nightmare... As long as they go back to sleep and finish their long rest, they'll get all of the rest of their spell slots back, regardless. Gotcha. I would tinker with that then, but just a random wild magic table would be a good effect as well. Well, we already have one. The wild magic table is in the player's handbook with the wild magic sorcerer, because the wild magic sorcerer can end up having a wild magic surge for any of a number of reasons. reasons. You know, I'm tempted to suggest that we do it that way instead, because then, you know, you don't have to go through and figure out, okay, how many spells do I have? Do we just pick one? Does the DM just pick one off of your list? Do we roll for it? It's an odd odd number. What do I roll? Right. I can see that as an issue. Generally, what I would do is at 11th level, you would know up to a 6th level spell. At 10th level, you know 5th level spell. So I just roll a 1d6. And then you'd have out your spells that you had prepared, and then you'd roll a die on those, and then target member. So it does come up with some dice. That can be a little clunky to deal with. My only hesitation with the wild magic spell tables that I'm looking at right now is a lot of them specifically, you regain a sorcery point, you regain 1d4 sorcery points, and I'm not quite sure how you'd work that into a wizard affinity at that point. How you'd work those sorcery points in for a wizard. Uh, that would be my my only hindrance. I've also thought about well, saying that if you suffered from the nightmare that you only get half the effects of your long rest. Because no one ever has a full good night's rest after having any kind of night terror. And that would be another thing where we'd have to figure out what is half of a long rest. You'd get half your effects. So you'd get only a portion of your spells back. Only a portion of your hit die back if you spent hit die. Things like that. Yeah, but see, that's something that we have to codify because there's no nothing in the rule set that says this is what half of a long rest is. It's an all or nothing sort of deal. Right, that's what I'm saying, but you get so much... How am I trying to phrase this? At the end of a long rest, you get so much back and you'd only get a portion of that back, either a half or three quarters. So if you got two hit die back, you'd get one hit die back. If you get 
three spell levels back, you'd get two spell levels back. That's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, but what I'm saying is there is no you get this finite amount. It is you get everything back. That is how the rules are. You get all of your missing hit points back. You get half of your max hit dice back. You get all of your spell slots back. So that's why I'm saying we have to define what half of a long rest is. Okay. What I would suggest would be you get all of your hit points back. You don't recover any hit dice. Yes, that sounds good. And then what we can do is to address your wild magic surge question with the sorcery points, we can put a rider in there and say, if you get a result that will give you sorcery points, you just re-roll. That works. Yeah, I'm good with that. Because I want to try and streamline this a little bit, you know, make it a little less... Okay, so I woke up with a nightmare, now I have to spend the next five minutes figuring out what happens. And that's, to me, that bit of, okay, this thing happens, so how are we going to resolve what happens when that happens is part of the fun of the item. But then again, we do not want it to be too clunky either. So yeah, I think the wild magic table goes a long way into solving that. Because this way, you have one roll for your wisdom saving throw, which is DC 12. Yes. So you have one roll for your wisdom saving throw. And if you fail, then you have a second D100 roll. So that makes it a maximum of two rolls as opposed to roll a D6 to figure out your spell level. Roll another die to figure out what spell it is going to be. Because then we have to figure out, is it going to be your prepared spells or is it going to be your known spells? Are you going to be able to just access all of the spells in your spell book? Or is it just going to be the spells that you prepared for the day? And in that case, if you didn't prepare any 5th level spells and then you roll a 5, then what happens? You would cast your highest level prepared. But yeah, I do get where you're coming from. But see, too, also, you're not preparing. Now you're not preparing a spell and a level. You're just preparing spells, and you cast them at what level you need with the slots as the wizard works now in 5e. So it used to be you had to prepare a third level Melf's Acid Arrow. Now you just have Melf's Acid Arrow, and you'd cast at third, fourth, fifth level, or whatever you decided you need because you have the open spell slot. So the way that I was understanding it, the way that you were describing it, that first die to determine spell level was to determine what level spell was getting cast. Right, because you're going to use that slot. It's what spell okay, you cast so, at which level slot. So you could cast a first level spell at fifth level. So you could cast, I don't know, let me pull up a first level wizard spell, just whatever one shocking is off grasp. the top of my head. Yeah, you could cast Shocking Grasp and then at what spell slot, be it a first level spell slot or a fifth level spell slot. See, this confusion is, is the problem. part of the problem. Because I was thinking that it was going to be you roll a d6 because you have access to up to six level spells and that determines which level spell you're going to be picking from. If you roll a four, then you look at your block of, these are the fourth level spells that I know, so one of these fourth level spells is the one that's going to be cast. No, it would be you'd cast any of your prepared spells at fourth level. So it would burn one of your fourth level slots. Okay, and then how would you determine which of your prepared spells was the one that went off? Again, that would be picked at random as well. So as a DM, I would use that as a DM die roll. But then... They have so many spells prepared, that I'd roll off of that. If you ended up having 13 spells prepared, how do you, there's no D13. Right, so you could do a D12 plus 1. But if you do a D12 plus 1, then you, you're going to never be able to roll a 1. So you could do that, or generally like picking a spell out of a hat, or some way randomizing it. I had made this spell book for a 3.5, so the setup was different, so we did know what spells they had prepared for each day. So at that point, it is a little different. 
It's one of those things where the translation isn't one-to-one, and so we can't just take this 3.5 item, drop it into 5th edition, and just let it go. So we're going to do, you get an additional 4th and 5th level spell slot. Every night you have to make a DC 12 wisdom saving throw. If you succeed, nothing happens. If you fail, you have a nightmare in the middle of the night. And then we're going to have a wild magic surge. And if you wake up with a nightmare, you don't recover any of your lost hit dice. Do you still get that 4th level and 5th level spell slot? Do you still get those extra spell slots if you wake up with a nightmare in the middle of the night? I want to say yes, because originally the thing is is that you'd cast one of the slots you've got as part of the nightmare, so that was the drawback. So I would say you don't get the fifth level if you fail the saving throw, but you keep the fourth. So instead of getting two slots, you get one. Okay, that'll work. Now that we got that out of the way... Um... Don't say it like that, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it was... That was a lot to go through. That was a bit. That wound up being a lot clunkier than I thought it was going to be, and so my apologies for that. Well, you're fine. That's part of what we're doing here is we're taking an item, and we're figuring out the mechanics of it, and we're figuring out how we can alter those mechanics to streamline it. Correct. And so, so this, again, it was a good exercise to see this works, this doesn't work. Again, a good way to go through and show the hows and whys of the actual mechanical building of things. This is how the Legos work. And now when you're asleep, I'm going to throw all those Legos empty on your floor and you can deal with them. You act like I'm not the kid who had bins full of Legos that I walked through barefoot because I could. So go ahead and going into my level 11 item. I'm thinking I might go with a different name for it, but I'm just calling it the reactive coat for now. It does require attunement. While attuned, you are permanently under the effects of the Mage Armor spell. If the effect gets dispelled, it returns after you complete a short or long rest. At the end of a short or long rest, you may choose one of the following damage types. Acid, cold, fire, lightning, or poison. If you are targeted by a spell of 5th level or lower that deals damage of the chosen type, and you succeed on a saving throw against it, You may use your reaction to redirect the spell back at the caster. The spell retains any enhancement placed on it by the original caster, such as metamagics, but uses your spell save DC. You may change your chosen damage type anytime you complete a short or long rest. I like this. This kind of feels like our code of chromatic colors that we had for our warrior. So has that feel. This also feels very akin to the epic item, the robes of the archmage, but not quite as potent. This feels fairly solid as an 11th level item. And rather than giving resistance, it provides a certain amount of spell reflection. But there's a lot of specificity to it. So it can only be a spell of 5th level or lower. That was a caveat that we added in after some conversation that you pointed out. A ring that allowed you to reflect spells up to 7th level that I think was a legendary quality. Correct. And again, that was one of those items that I pulled out from those cards of the magical loot from Wizards. So in this case, instead of taking like a lower item and just kind of beefing it up till it fit the rare quality that we wanted, this was a good way of taking something similar, parsing it back till where it fit the level we wanted. You can take an item and you can move it up or you can move it down as you have need. And so the ring works on any spell, whereas this one, you have to choose a damage type and it can only reflect damage of that type and it can only reflect damage if it has a saving throw so something like a firebolt where it has a spell attack roll if you get hit with a firebolt it will never reflect it but if you get hit by a fireball you can reflect that fire damage 
Assuming you picked fire damage. And if yeah, you picked uh, lightning damage for the rest, then you're just SOL. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> I like how that works. There are certain stars that have to line up for it to work optimally. Just if having you, mage armor up at all times is a nice little something to have. Yeah, because wizards are going to want to have mage armor. And mage armor, as it is, it lasts for eight hours, but you have to burn a spell slot to cast it. So you're automatically going into the day with one fewer spell slots. And this just frees up that spell slot. It's only like a first or second level spell. So, But at the end of the day, at the end of a long fight, you're what in that first and second level spell yeah, slot Yeah, absolutely. Back. And this way, you don't have to prepare mage armor. So you end up having another slot that you can prepare a different spell. Yeah, so this kind of frees up a lot of extra room in your pockets, and that's always a very comforting thing to have. And this particular item rewards pre-planning. It rewards, what's the word I'm looking for? Preparation? Roleplay? Not, not espionage, uh, information Intelli- gathering. Uh, Intelligence? Investigation? No, Insight? <laughs> no, it's reconnaissance. That's the word I'm looking for. There we go, okay. That's the word I'm looking for, reconnaissance. It rewards taking the time to investigate what you're about to get into so that you can prepare in advance. And again, this is something that promotes roleplay within the characters in the group, and that's something that Ian and I, as players and DM, both always love, and pretty much any DM's going to want. If you sit around the table, and even if you're just a bunch of friends playing the table, the person that really gets into their character, that's when the game becomes fun. You don't have to dress up in your robe and wizard hat, but when you start thinking like your character's going to think, because you sat at the table and you've become your character... You're all actors. All the world's a stage and all the table's a stage. And that's really fun. So this is an item that definitely promotes that kind of play, which I like. Yeah, I'm not going to remember that one time when we were fighting those nameless goons in the street and what the die rolls were. What I'm going to remember is five minutes before that confrontation, when my kobold monk was in the bar with the goblin bard and I talked him into playing darts with me. And he beat me at darts. Yeah. That's what I'm going to remember. Exactly. And it's the storytelling moments. Kind of an aside, but one of the absolute best moments of roleplay I got to play with Ian, we were playing VTM, Vampire the Masquerade, with some other friends of ours. And as a table rule, they had decided to make it that whenever I physically had a tick, a vocal tick that my character in game would have a vocal tick, which I've had friends that tried to do that with a game and it can work and it's fun and I'm fairly thick-skinned with my Tourette's, and people know me, so I know they were having fun. But people focusing on my ticks that way do tend to cause me a little anxiety. And for me to have more ticks, it's just one of those things. And so Ian and I were on this mission with the rest of our group, and we're supposed to be, you know, really working our stealth skill, and I happen to really loudly have a vocal tick, which completely just, there go all of our stealth rolls completely right out the window. And Ian was playing basically like a 1920s mobster, kind of yeah. like a... Sagan? Yeah, I'm just agreeing with you, yeah. I'm, okay. I'm just remembering, yeah. I forget the name of his character, but, you know, kind of like Jimmy. an Al-, Al Capone type character. Jimmy Nardello. dude. So I had this tick, and the DM basically looks up and goes, well, yeah, they heard that, obviously. And so he's, well, time to go in. And he, he had this, like, he came up with this great, like, Chicago, New York accent and just kicked in the door, and there we are, you know. And that was just, it was a wonderful roleplay save on Ian's part. And that's probably one of those roleplay moments that I absolutely love Ian for. It was just, okay, there we are. But he did it with the voice. He did it in character. Everything lined up so perfectly. It was great. Yeah, it was, we were sneaking up on a hangar in an airport. It was a private hangar, and we were going to try and sneak in. And he twitches out in the truck because he intentionally stayed back. But he twitched outside, and 
the storyteller had the sound go on inside that they were alerted. And I was like, well, cat's out of the bag now. And so I kicked down the door and I, unfortunately, there was a whole bunch of inky blackness just inside the door. And so I just opened up with my shotgun and and backpedaled real quick. I just, I attacked the darkness. Yes, but there was no Mountain Dew. But it really is those moments of role play when you forget that it's Ian at the table and it's, and for the life of me, it was forever going. I can't forget Ian's character's name. Jimmy. Jimmy, yeah. So it wasn't Ian at the table anymore. It was Jimmy at the table. And those are the really fun moments in tabletop gaming I really like. Okay, so let's get back on topic. Because while reminiscing is fun, we do actually yes, back have on, a time schedule. <laughs> yes, I think back on topic takes us to our level 20 items. Yeah, it does. It does. Woo-hoo. So do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Um, I can go first on this one. So for my level 20 item, I thought that what we really need is a really strong, robust staff for our wizard. So what I came up with was the staff for the pretender. We're going to give the staff two charges. And with those charges, you can cast either Psychic Scream for two charges or Antipathy Sympathy or Enfeeble Mind with one charge each. And that'll reset at the end of a long rest for each of those. The other thing that Ian and I kind of bounced back and forth that we were working on was I initially wanted to give whoever held the staff or was attuned to the staff access to the Warcaster feat. Various reasons we were bouncing this back and forth. It didn't quite work. But the things we did want to keep with that is we are going to allow the staff to hold, concentrate on an individual spell. Well, that was an original concept that I had brought up. I didn't have a player's handbook in front of me at the time. And I didn't realize that the three spells that we were tacking on to this staff, none of them required concentration. And so I had in my head that each of these spells would require concentration, which is why I had pushed for that initially. And then once I figured out that they didn't require concentration, that it was a one and done instantaneous effect, I think that we should actually probably move away from that. Because the enchantment school, going back and looking through the spells, really isn't as concentration heavy as I thought it was. A lot of it is, it is a one and done sort of thing. And then there's a trigger on top of it where if they take damage, they get another save or it breaks the effect. If they perceive hostile actions against an ally, it'll let them save or break an effect. They get a save every turn until they break it or until it expires, those sorts of things. And there's not a whole lot of concentration spells in the enchantment school and i really thought that there were whenever we were first discussing this Um, no you tend to find the concentration scales more with abjuration and or illusion and some of the other schools as well yeah abjuration and illusion are the two big ones the one happy accident that did come from that as we were batting this thing back and forth though is we did decide that the staff of all things is going to be sentient we have not made an intelligent item yet and so much like a bad prom date our happy accident is we created a new life (laughs) And I was actually thinking, because originally we were going to use the sentience within the staff as a workaround to allow you to concentrate on two spells at a time, but because we don't need that now, I had brought up this concept just spitballing just to see what was going to stick. I think that if you use the staff to cast Feeble Mind on a creature and you successfully land it that maybe blow the second charge maybe it's just an automatic thing the sentience within the staff takes over the body of the creature that you cast feeble mind on and in doing so the staff just ends up becoming basically a plus two staff with the properties of the wand of the war mage 
So plus two on spell attack rolls and ignore half cover for spell attacks. I like that workaround as well. And two with uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, I think they're adding the sidekick rules. And I think that would be a really good way that while the target is possessed by your staff, they would fall under a uh, sidekick profile for your character as well. I was thinking you'd be able to make an opposed wisdom check, you versus the sentience within the staff, whenever you wanted to pull the sentience out of whatever vessel they were in and back into the staff. Because, and we had been bouncing back and forth on what the sentience was, how it came to be trapped within this magic item. And I proposed it is a captured phylactery with, you know, a lich or wizard's consciousness trapped inside. And it's been enchanted so that they can't manifest back out of it. And so this basically body snatching is the only way that they can get out. Right. And that adds a lot of flavor, a bit of lore. I was thinking that calling it the staff of the pretender, that it was someone that was trying to usurp an archmage's position or chair. And so they were locking the staff via as a punishment or a trophy, but the lich idea or the flactory idea really works really well too. The question is, is on a possession, the character that's possessed would be able to roll a will check. I'm assuming with disadvantage, we decided on correct. Yes, but the thing with feeble mind is that you only get that saving through once every 30 days. And it would be if they succeed on their saving throw against feeble mind, if they reassert their consciousness over their body because there's not room for two consciousness consciousnesses is that even a word two sentiences i don't know if that's a word either we're going with it there's not room for two people in one head so being the native consciousness it would force the other one back out okay i'm trying to think at what point if you basically use this and you had a minion a homunculi or whatever you had at what point would you actually want to withdraw that where you would actually initiate that check with the sentience within the staff. I like that, and I think that should be a check that we need to bring in a little more frequently. I'm just trying to figure out how to activate that or how we would want to use that. The reason why you would want to do it is because you lose everything beyond it being just a plus two staff when the sentience isn't in it. And that was the other thing we did want to add to the staff, too, was while we didn't give you the war casting feat, we did want to give you the ability to cast a spell as an attack of opportunity as well. That was actually a fairly big thing I did want to add to that. I kind of want to beef it up a little bit because I feel like, especially as a wizard with this sort of skill set, you're probably going to be taking the war caster feat anyway. I think we are going to be giving the war caster feat to this wizard and since we are tailoring this item to this wizard i think that we should treat the attributes that the item gets accordingly so one thing that i wanted to add to it as a workaround on the warcaster feat as it's written part of the warcaster feat as it's written states that you can cast a spell as long as it's a one action spell and targets only the target that you're attacking I want to be able to pair the uh, 10th level enchantment wizard class ability that allows you to target a second creature with an enchantment spell if it's a single target enchantment spell. I want to be able to tack that on to the attack of opportunity cast if you were able to get a warcaster trigger and you were to cast a single target enchantment spell. 
Okay, yeah, that sounds really good. So we'd write down, if you trigger the Warcaster attack of opportunity, spells automatically gain split enchantment from the school of enchantment. We would have to specify that it is still only an enchantment spell because I don't want to be able to do this with, say, a firebolt. Right. Well, split enchantment, as written in the text, it does only apply to enchantment spells from the text. Yeah, we're going to have to just make sure that we specify in the wording of the item that it is still only applicable to enchantment spells. Okay, and that's reasonable. That's just closing up loopholes. Yeah. Players are going to want to find those loopholes. Right. It's kind of like me finding the loophole that you can use darts with sharpshooter because they are a ranged thrown weapon. So they are the only thrown weapon that you can actually use sharpshooter with. So what we have right now, we have a level 20 sentient staff with two charges. You can cast psychic scream for two charge, or you can cast antithy, sympathy, and or feeble mind. feeble mind for one charge each. While we have the sentience within the staff, you also get split enchantment on enchanting spells with your attack of opportunities with the warcasting feat, plus two to your spell attack rolls, and that ignores cover. So if you do cast in Feeble Mind and your target fails the saving throw, then the consciousness of the staff will enter and possess the target, at which point you will be able to use the target under the upcoming henchman rules that's going to be included in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And your staff will drop basically to a regular plus two War Mage staff. I almost want to put in an opposed wisdom check that you can use to force the consciousness to stay in the staff when you land a feeble mind. That would be a fun mechanic to add as well. We could do that if you do not want the target to become possessed, then you would actually have to oppose sentience within the staff. I think that works out, so it's not overpowered. It gives your character some good lore to play with. It has a good bit of self-balancing, so I'm liking how this is going. This really became kind of a hodgepodge, a Frankenstein's monster of sorts, but (laughs) it's coming around really well, I think. Well, I mean, it's appropriate for a sentient item that actually has the consciousness of a wizard trapped inside of it to make it seem like a Frankenstein's monster sort of hodgepodge thing. Absolutely. And I'm thinking, treat it as if it were, let's just say... A 15th level wizard with 18 intelligence, it would give it a plus 9 on its wisdom check. or So 18 wisdom, so uh, give it a plus 9 on its wisdom check, and that would make it a DC 17 on the saving throws whenever you use a charge. That sounds reasonable for a 20th level item. The DC that we put on Akronosh, the great sword that we gave the fighter, was a DC 18. And at the point that this wizard is going to be with a 20 intelligence, she would have a DC 19 on her spell save. So this does give you a little bit of an edge on your, well, not necessarily if you don't stack heavy into your wisdom score, you might have a hard time trying to control this sentience if it decides that it's going to make a break for it. If I were going to change anything at all at this point, because, you know, we've changed this a bunch already, I'd almost want to add a once per round or once per every other round, we'll check when the sentience is in a host body, that it actually tries to take over the body and break the will of the sorcerer as well. So it could run free. Eventually it would be pulled into the staff at once it failed that check, but give it a chance to where I have a body on a 
I'm going to run free if possible, and I'm not quite sure how I'd work that out exactly. Well, we already have a mechanic of you make an opposed wisdom check to try and draw it back into the staff. We already did that. Right. I'm trying to think if this sentience realizes it has a body, how much freedom could it try to actually work out on its own? But again, I think that's getting a little too clunky. And I would also add, in true School of Enchantment fashion, if the consciousness... We really have to give this thing a name so we stop calling it the consciousness or the sentience. But if the consciousness succeeds on the saving throw, on the opposed check, if it wins, then you can't attempt to pull it back in for 24 hours. I would like that. That would be fun. I would say on a failed check, when you try to pull it back in, you can't attempt to pull it back in for 24 hours. And the character becomes no longer a henchman or a sidekick but rather its own NPC. And at that point, if it tries to run away or flee, you can try to track it down, you can try to contain it or capture it or however you want to before you can try that check again. But it is no longer under your control. Effectively, it'd end up becoming a 15th level enchanter. In Volos, yeah, they've got the different... The enchanter in Volos is a 9th level wizard. So, you know what? I would almost just say... Use that stat block. Use that stat block because... It's going to take it a while to try and figure out the new body. I'm going to go ahead and do something I rarely do. I'm going to name a character. Normally, I suck at naming characters. However, since we're dealing with Yanti, I'm going to give a tip of the hat to an old favorite author of mine, David Eddings. The consciousness, I'm going to dub Sal Marissa. She was a snake queen in the Bulgarian series. That'll work. We have a staff of the Pretender. We do have a staff of the Pretender. Okay, so, so what did you bring for our 20th level? So for my 20th level item, I'm calling it Mana Siphon. It's a cloak. So if you succeed on a saving throw against a spell that would deal half damage, it instead deals no damage. If the spell would deal no damage on a save, you instead gain hit points equal to 2 times the spell's level. Cantrips restore 1 hit point. The cloak has 25 charges. When you cast a spell, you may spend a number of charges equal to the spell's level to impose disadvantage on the saving throw or grant advantage on your attack roll. You may also spend twice the spell's level and charges to maximize the spell's damage. You may only apply one effect per turn. Gotcha. So if you're casting a ninth level spell, you're spending 18 charges? You can spend 9 charges on a ninth level spell to impose disadvantage on the saving throw or gain advantage on the attack roll, or you can blow 18 charges to maximize the damage. That's good, and when you're talking those higher level mage spells, you really do need the brick of d6s to roll on the table. And so you gain charges equal to your total spell levels regained when you use your arcane recovery ability on a short rest. I realize that's kind of a wordy sentence. So when you use your arcane recovery, you gain a number of spell levels equal to half your wizard level. Level, right. So, so at 20th you level, you're going to be gaining 10? 10. You can only gain spell slots of 5th level or lower. But still, right. you regain 10 spell levels whenever you right. use your Arcane Recovery the first time you take a short rest every day. Because you can only use Arcane Recovery once per day. So whenever you take your short rest and you use your Arcane Recovery, it regains 10 charges at level 20. You also regain... 3d6 plus 6 charges at the end of a long rest. Okay. So you don't automatically just get all of your charges back. That could be part of a limiter to discourage you from blowing all of your charges because you could blow all 25 charges and then the next 
morning when you wake up, you roll three ones and you only have nine charges to work with that day. I like it. Now, is there any penalty for using all of the charges? I didn't have one. I do know a lot of the charged magical items, if you blow all the charges, they'll go, quote, quote, inert for a set time. Or they'll Um, go kaboom. Yeah, or they go kaboom, which that would be really interesting if you're wearing something that goes kaboom. I'd Um, prefer not that. I don't like magic items that destroy themselves if you run them out of charges. So Um, you do not like goblin engineering. We we got this. (laughs) (laughs) I tend not to like those too much. They can be fun. I think if you use all the charges, it maybe it reverts to a cloak that gives you just a plus one AC. I think that just the fact that you don't have access to your charges anymore would be would be sufficient. But I have here where I was talking with you that using this cloak, you could cast Meteor Swarm, which is a ninth level spell, blow eighteen charges and deal 240 damage to everyone in the area of effect on a failed saving throw. That's everyone. That's friend and foe alike. <laughs> That's everyone in range. Including you. <laughs> well, I, I should certainly hope that you wouldn't drop a meteor on yourself. Stranger um, things have happened. Stranger things have happened. So, I mean, just got to listen to the kobold episode again, talking about Tucker's kobold. You want a party wipe? That's how you get a party wipe. <laughs> you have yeah. one spell left. So, yeah, that's what I brought. Yeah, no, I like this a lot, and I really hope that one day I could see someone rolling something like this, and they bring out the brand new, like, where you go to the GameStop and you actually buy the brick of D6s and just just upend it on the table. I did that much damage, and walk away. I did that once in 3.5. I had a 20th level sorcerer NPC who, as part of a plot point, used a 9th level disintegrate. Oh. Which, in 3rd edition, was... 2D, it was 2d6 per caster level. Wow. So that was 40d6. Yeah, that's... So that was that was a brick of d6s plus 4d6. That makes my little casting art happy. I do this much. <laughs> it ended up being over 200 damage. That's crazy. All ones. Don't know how it happened, but there it is. <laughs> All ones. <laughs> so I think we have some items. So I think we now have our third character built up equipped and ready for battle yeah pretty much this is happening quicker than i'd imagine we've got one more character to roll up yeah we've got Uh, one more we're going to be doing a hobgoblin cleric for our next character and the hobgoblin the more i've looked at it i'm really liking this class i think it's going to be a fun one to work with the yanti was a more complex character for us to work just because there's so many things to work with and the same thing with the wizard. There was so many different ways we could have gone. The clerics can go a lot of different directions too, but I think we have an idea of what we want to do with our cleric. So this, I think, is going to be a good capstone for our showcase. I'm, I'm really excited. So for next episode, we're going to be going back to doing another light episode. Another episode where we don't really focus on the mechanics of gameplay and more some more of the theory behind gameplay. Uh, We have a friend of ours that we're going to be bringing on for an interview, and we're going to be talking about the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural inspiration, and why cultural appropriation is bad, and how to avoid it in your homebrew. And I'm real excited. Our friend Emily, we met her through our Society for Creative Anachronism, our medieval living history group. She does a lot of research into Chinese history, East Asia in general, but Chinese specifically. And right. uh, so she she has a lot of insight into what cultural appropriation is and how to avoid it in your portrayal of different cultures that are not your own. 
And considering this is coming up as we wrap up the Yanti, I think is rather fitting because there was a lot of appropriation with the early Yanti lore and builds. So this is a good way to kind of be mindful. Anytime you're at a table or anytime you're playing a game, you want to do your best not to exceed the acceptable limits of douchebaggery. Don't be a dick at the table is a good general rule to go with. Follow Wheaton's law. Don't be a dick. So yeah, so next week we should have Emily on with us and that should be a lot of fun. Again, Thank you guys for joining us. Subscribe, download, tell your friends. Word of mouth is our really big way of how we're getting out there right now. Join us on Twitter. I'm getting really lonely on Twitter. Please, <laughs> yeah, so please, again, please come have... and talk to me. If I've horribly offended you, please let me know. Don't just yell at your computer. I can't fix it <laughs> if you don't tell me. <laughs> if you have comments or if you have things you think we need to review again or adjust or you have ideas for something we have, may have missed or something that you said, you know, you guys had this great idea but maybe twist it just a little bit more this direction. And we would love to hear back from you. We plan to eventually have some feedback episodes, kind of go through, reimagine things, reinvestigate things. It's definitely a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at UndercommonTaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.